This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you, evil master, for giving me the chance to speak. I hope my film thoughts will please your evil spirit. Okay, people, welcome to the movie loot. I've been burning myself in the fiery pits of hell, but before going back down, I'd like to share my thoughts on all the horror films I saw this month. The best horror film, or the best film period that I saw in October, was Alien, which I've seen several times. I dedicated a whole episode to that, so if you want to know my talks about it, check out Special Episode 8, which came out a couple of days ago. Speaking of Alien, my friend Milo underscore AFC said, Ridley Scott's best and one of the best films in both its two genres. Griff from the Paul and Griff show said, Alien is a masterpiece in suspense cinema. You're not expecting the female to be the lone survivor. It's true horror with nowhere to go. Another one of the best horror films I saw this month was The Descent, which was another rewatch, but I also talk about this film quite a bit on episode 47, The Horror Loot with my friend Ed, so if you want to know my thoughts about that film, check that episode out. About The Descent, my friend at L. Black Phillips said, The Descent is legit one of the best horror movies of the 2000s, and the sequel is almost as good. And I agree, at least about the original, which is why I brought it up on that episode. But anyway, putting those two aside, let's talk then about my October loot. A freebie. The first film I want to talk about is not properly a horror film, even though it depicts some horrific and tragic events, but I want to talk about it for several reasons, and it's Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring from 1960. This film is set in medieval Sweden, and it follows two parents, Tore and Mareta, played by Max Ponsido and Birgitta Balberg, whose daughter is raped and murdered as she's on her way to church, so they decide to take matters in their own hands against the ones who did it. The reason that I wanted to bring it up is that this film was the basis for Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, which is like a seminal horror film. Now, I've seen that film and the remake, but I didn't know about this connection until earlier this year. It is actually my sixth film from Bergman, and each film of his is a revelation in many ways. My first experience with him was The Seventh Seal, which I have to admit I wasn't that crazy about, and yet pretty much each film of his I've seen after has been amazing. 
So this film isn't as surreal as, say, Persona, but it still has a very strong emotional anchor, but with a more straightforward, raw approach. It also has one of Bergman's main themes, which is the questioning of God's purpose in the things that happen to us. The film is a bit of a tough watch as things unravel, but I like how Bergman doesn't lose focus on the main characters, Tore and Mareta, and how they think, rethink, and think again of how they are going to react to this tragedy that has happened to them. So far, I would say it's my second favorite Bergman after Persona. So yeah, loved it. My friend Phil Sagan said, Virgin Spring is like a fairy tale took a wrong turn and became a gothic revenge flick. Max Monsido is mesmerizing his best performance perhaps, and perhaps my favorite Bergman film. On the other hand, Milo said, fairly mid-tier Bergman, but mid-tier Bergman is still Bergman. So two slightly different opinions there. If you want to check it out, The Virgin Spring is streaming free on the Criterion channel. A film from the 2000s. You all right? I feel like I know this place. I recognize this corridor. The liners, they look pretty similar. No, that's not it. Come check this out. This is the same ship. This thing's old. Jess. Come on. Yeah. Come on. 1932. It is the same. See? Here's where we boarded. Oh, yeah. The Aeolus. Aeolus. Aeolus is the great god of the winds and the father of Sisyphus. A man condemned by the gods to the task of pushing a rock up a mountain only to see it roll back down again. That's a pretty shitty punishment. What'd he do? He cheated death. Or, no, he made a promise to death that he didn't keep. I studied it, but I can't remember. Can we just keep on moving, please? The second best horror film I saw this month was 2009's Triangle. This film was a mindfuck, but what a great one. It follows Jess, played by Melissa George, a single mother that goes on a boat trip with a group of friends. When an unexpected storm capsizes their boat, they find an apparently derelict cruise ship, only to find out that someone on board might be stalking them and killing them. This is a film that was recommended by a couple of people, and like I said, it was a really, really nice surprise. I'm going to try not to give too much away, because it's one of those films that is definitely better if you don't know too much or anything at all. But I'll say that director and writer Christopher Smith starts from an inventive script and uses some depth direction to weave this story in a way that constantly makes you go, huh, what? Most of the performances are pretty good, with George being the standout. She manages to convey both the confusion and eventual resolve of her character as she tries to figure out what's going on. Most of the rest of the cast are little-known Australian or New Zealand actors, with the exception of Liam Hemsworth. I think it was actually his first film. But anyway, I fully recommend it. I saw it earlier in the month, but a couple of days later, I was still thinking about it and trying to figure out the hows and whys of what happened, which actually made me bump the rating a notch on Letterboxd. So I think it's that good. If you like twisty, mind-bending thrillers, I'm sure you're going to love this. It's currently available in a dozen of streaming services, from Peacock and the Raku Channel to Voodoo and Tubi, among many others. A film from Guillermo del Toro. Things we do for love like this are ugly, mad, full of sweat and regret. This love burns you and maims you, 
twist you inside out. It is a monstrous love. And it makes monsters of us all. Guillermo del Toro was born in October 9, so I wanted to check out one of his films. I really would have liked to rewatch Pan's Labyrinth or The Devil's Backbone, because I haven't seen them in a very long time, but eventually decided to go with a first watch and went with Crimson Peak from 2015. Set in the early 20th century, the film follows Edith Cushing, played by Mia Wasikowska, the daughter of an important businessman and an aspiring writer herself, when an aristocrat called Thomas Sharp and her sister, played by Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain, come looking for funding for a digging machine, Edith finds herself drawn to their mysterious lives and eventually their apparently haunted home, the titular Crimson Peak. It's funny because, for some reason, this film seems to be very polarizing. When I asked about it on Twitter, I got everything from it being a glorious, excessive love letter to Vava and Hammer and A Feast for the Eyes, to it being a lot of wasted potential and an overhype, over-CGI'd mess. I happen to lean more towards the former. From the get-go, I found myself engaged in the plot, thanks mostly to the performances from Wasikowska and Hiddleston. I thought there was a very good balance of intrigue and romance, with a surprising sprinkle of violence at one point. I was also surprised to see Charlie Hunnam, who I usually find cringy, deliver a fairly competent performance. In the second half, Chastain takes a more prominent role and she also delivers. It is also in that second half that the incredible production values are more evident. The set design, the lighting, and the whole production values behind the Crimson Peak house are impressive. Yeah, there were some moments where the CGI was a tad spotty, but it didn't really take me out of the film. So I thought this was a thoroughly entertaining, well-acted, and nicely paced film with some impressive production values. The ghost angle could have been executed a bit better, but I wasn't that bothered by it. My friend Tyler at A Film Addicted is the one that said the film was a glorious love letter to Baba and Hammer, while my friend Jay Rodriguez is the one that called it an overhyped, over-CGI'd mess. Milo said about the film, amazing visuals, more of a gothic romance than a horror, one of the best of the last decade. If you want to check it out, it's streaming free on Netflix. A film from Austria. Austria celebrated its independence in October 26, so I wanted to check out a film from there, and I found this 2014 film called Goodnight Mommy. The film follows twin brothers Elias and Lucas, played by real-life twin brothers Elias and Lucas Schwartz, as they try to cope with various traumatizing experiences. When their mother, played by Suzanne West, returns home from cosmetic surgery, the twins notice changes in her behavior and start suspecting that she might not be their mother. Or is she? As I was looking for Austrian films, most of what came up was from Michael Haneke's filmography, and it is a bit ironic and interesting since there are certainly a couple of parallelisms between this film and Haneke's Funny Games, or even another Austrian film called Angst, which I talked about on an episode last year. The thing is that all of these films follow characters trapped in some way inside their own homes, subjected to different types of physical, psychological, and emotional pain and torture. 
I'll start by saying that in Goodnight Mommy, there's a twist that I felt was predictable as hell, at least to me. I mean, I guessed it less than five minutes into the film, but despite that, co-directors and co-writers Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala still managed to create a slow-building, dread-filled atmosphere around this broken family. I wish they wouldn't have spent so much effort trying to conceal the twist gimmick because it was a bit distracting, but at the end of the day, I felt the payoff was worth it. If you haven't seen it, this is yet another film that I think works best knowing as little as possible. It is the kind of film that's tough to watch for many visual, psychological, and emotional reasons, but the kind of film that kind of sticks with you as you try to figure out how things got to where they end at. So if you want to check it out, it's streaming free on Vudu, Tubi, and the Roku channel. A thriller. You know, I've made some, some choices uh, that I'm stuck with. I'm, I'm stuck here. <laughs> I'm like the dead cat, right? This whole night we've been worrying. There's some dark version of us out there somewhere. What if we're the dark version? For this category, I went with yet another twisty, mind-bending thriller, and it's called Coherence from 2013. The film follows a group of friends meeting for a dinner party the night of the passing of a comet. As the night progresses, a series of weird and unexplainable events start to unfold that make them all question the decisions of their past as well as the nature of themselves and who they are. But the events of the night might also put them or others in danger. Like Triangle, this is another film that was recommended to me by a couple of people, and it's sort of in the same vein, mind-bending, twisted thriller, and it's certainly delivered in that area. Director and co-writer James Ward Birkitt makes the most of an extremely low budget, I think it was made for 50000 but he relies on a solid script, weird occurrences, and solid performances to build this dread about what's happening. Again, I'm trying to avoid too much details here because it's worth seeing without spoiling and with as little knowledge as possible, but I was impressed by the fact that Birkid and co-writer Alex Manujian would only give the actors some pointers about the characters and the general beats of the story while allowing them to improvise. And when you know that and see the end result, it's impressive. There were maybe one, maybe two performances that were a bit spotty, and I had some slight issues with some really grainy outside shots, but considering the budget, I can fault them for that. I'm a sucker for a mindfuck film, so whenever a film manages to sweep the rug from under my feet, I'm sold. Coherence might not have completely dropped me to my feet, but it certainly kept tugging at the carpet and kept me wondering most of the time. My friend Keram at K. Maliki Sanchez said, you know what I think about Coherence. Keram was my guest for episode 41, The Mindfuck Loot, in which he spoke very highly about the film, and it's actually one of the reasons why I prioritize watching it. My friend Jacob Neff at JJ Starflyer said, Coherent strength, like that of cult favorite Primer, comes from its unique scientific concept combined with minuscule scale and our inability to see what is happening outside the confines of the group. I still haven't seen Primer, but I agree with what he said. It is currently streaming on Prime, Hulu, Tubi, Shutter, Fubo, and many other services, and it's definitely worth a watch. A film about a virus. Virus Appreciation Day was celebrated in October 3, so I went looking for a film about a virus and pick up 2021's Blood Red Sky. 
This is a Netflix film and it follows Nadja, played by Perry Baumeister, a woman that is traveling with her son Elias, played by Carl Anton Koch, from Europe to New York to receive treatment for an unspecified illness. However, during the trip, they have to face two opposing forces, with a group of terrorists seizing control of the plane on one side and the threat of a vampire on the other. Vampire films have been a constant presence in Hollywood and the world of cinema since forever, so even though the film isn't wildly original, it does feel like a bit of a fresh approach to the subgenre. From the threat in an enclosed space to the twist of who ends up becoming a vampire, the premise might be tired, but the film reinvigorates it, resulting in a fairly thrilling, tense, and enjoyable product. Even though most of the actors are not well known, most of the performances are pretty solid, the flashier role probably goes to Alexander Scheer, who plays a sociopathic terrorist who ends up becoming the main antagonist. I do think the film could have easily been 20-30 minutes shorter. You can feel a bit of strain in trying to stretch things, but it was still very energetic and entertaining, and I wouldn't hesitate to recommend it to fans of the genre. A film with the number 10 in its title. So sit back, begin to stir, and let me drag you into the chilling depths of this Halloween monster marathon. <laughs> For this category, I went with a horror anthology film called 1031. It consists of five Halloween shorts directed by aspiring horror directors like Justin Seaman, Rocky Gray, Hunter Johnson, Sane Hirschberger, Brett D. Jagger, and John William Holt. The topics of the shorts go from an old woman hunting a bed and breakfast or a young couple trespassing on cursed gypsy land to a trio of kid tricksters stalking a family during a blizzard or a serial killer on the loose. Overall, most of the shorts fall on the sheepish side. Remember that these are aspiring directors, but the direction per se shows potential, even if it is a bit amateurish. There were several jump scares, some of them effective, others just gimmicky. The performances across the board are very uneven, ranging from solid to simply atrocious. Special effects are very rubbery looking, but kind of fun, and the stories, some of them could have used more work and polish. The short that I think left more of an impression is called Killing the Dance, which has a young woman taking her kid brother to a Halloween party or dance at the local skating rink, only to see it turn into a blood fest. I felt this one was the most focused, had the best camera work, the strongest story, and the best performances. Overall, the whole film is not something you should get out of your way to watch, but it might be a fun alternative for a Halloween party with friends. So if you want to check it out, it is streaming free on Roku Channel and Tubi. A film where a prominent character wears a hat. You shouldn't have buried me. I'm not dead. Matt Hatter Day is celebrated on October 6, so I was looking for a film where a prominent character wears a hat. During the last few years, I've been trying to rewatch some of the classic 80s horror films, so I went with A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. This film picks up shortly after part 3, with the three survivors from that part still struggling with nightmares, when Freddy Krueger, played by Robert Englund, is resurrected, a new group of teenagers led by Alice, played by Lisa Wilcox, are inadvertently drawn into his dream world and forced to fight for their survival. 
This film is usually seen as the one that fully changed Freddy into a wisecracking joker while also exuding a somewhat colorful and frenetic music video vibe and you can clearly see that as Freddy chews on head-shaped meatballs with a smirk and mimics a shark's fin with his glove when stalking a victim on the beach all while pop rock and fast cuts rock the screen but aside from Freddy's jokes and the overall style, my main complaints are with the performances and the script. Seriously, the acting is horrible from pretty much everyone except England. And unfortunately, the actors aren't helped by the cringy dialogue. But moreover, as is usual with the Nightmare franchise, the story is a mess. Once again, there is no rhyme or reason as to why Freddy comes back or how he is defeated. You get some characters fighting him with karate in some silly set pieces, while our heroes somehow pass on useless dream powers from one to the other. They also bring up a rhyme and a certain weakness of Freddy that conveniently hadn't been mentioned before. Why? Who cares? As far as slashes go, there are a few creative, gory moments, particularly a character that turns into a roach and an inventive scene where characters end stuck in a time loop, but other than that, there isn't much to look for here. If you still want to check it out, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is streaming free on Fubo, HBO Max, Peacock, and DirecTV. Those were all the horror films I saw this month, but aside from those, I still managed to sneak in a few non-horror films, so I want to do a brief rundown of them. Any film that starts with the letters S or T. For this category, I went with 1958's Touch of Evil, which I had been meaning to watch for a long time. Objectively speaking, it is a pretty good film with Orson Welles excelling in front and behind the camera. The big elephant in the room, however, is the casting of Charlton Heston as a Mexican agent, a role for which he dons a lot of brown face. As good as Heston is, this decision is problematic to say the least. Regardless of that, the film has a lot of merits from a technical standpoint as well as story-wise. It has a lot of tension and dread, but I can't overlook some problematic decisions and choices in it. My friend Jacob Neff said, The power of the long take in forming one of the best openings in cinematic history. Obviously referring to the impressive opening shot which lasts for a little over six minutes while crossing the US-Mexico border. My friend Sylvie said, A great film noir I didn't particularly like on first viewing, but seems to get better every time I watch it. So much so it's climbed to number 12 on my ranked list of almost 200 classic noirs. Technically masterful, but also layered thematically. A freebie. Another non-horror film I saw was Yasuhiro Osu's An Autumn Afternoon from 1962. This is my third Osu film in less than a year and it was a pretty nice treat. Osu continues to show his skill for creating a compelling drama out of seemingly mundane and simple events. The problem is that there is a certain element of being there done that to the film since it pretty much follows the same beats as Late Spring. Despite that, it is interesting to see tinges of evolution and growth in how men and women, fathers and children interact in both films. A film from the Criterion Collection whose number includes the number 10. For this category, I went with film number 1064 in the Criterion Collection, The Parallax View from 1974. A very intriguing film with a tight direction by Alan J. Pakula. BTE is also very good, but I couldn't help feeling detached from the story, especially the last act. It is worth a watch and it has a very cynical ending, but one that's fairly predictable. The bottom line is that it didn't really resonate with me or surprise me in any way. It was just there. A film with the word fire in its title. 
Fire Prevention Day was on October 9, so I decided to watch The Fireman's Ball from 1967. This film, directed by Milos Forman, has a fairly loose narrative as the firemen scramble to put in motion this event, this ball, which includes a raffle and a beauty pageant. It is with the latter that the film spends a significant amount of time with this mature old man ogling young reluctant woman, which was awkward and uncomfortable. There are some laughs and the film is an interesting snapshot of life in a small town in Europe. So if you feel like you're up for it, check it out. It's currently streaming free on the Criterion channel. So that was it for the Halloween loot. Hope you enjoyed listening to my thoughts on all those films. But before they drag me down to Hades, let's talk about what I have in store for November, if I make it out alive. For November, I'm going to try and watch a film with the number 11 in its title. A film that starts with the letters U or V. A war film. A film from the Criterion Collection whose number includes the number 11. A film from the 2010s. A film noir. A film with the words Black or Friday in its title. A film set in Egypt. A film from Poland. And a film from Jack Turner. So that's it for our Halloween loot. If you want to listen to us, remember you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, and most of the main podcast platforms. If you want to chat with me, you can find me on Twitter at TiffCGT and the podcast at TMML2021. And of course, I would like to keep on talking, but... Silence! But no! Grab him! No! To the pit! Nah, no! <laughs> <Not> again! <laughs> nah! <laughs> nah.